Vincent Werbeck's Derby. If you have a Bible, I'd love you to open it to chapter 33 of Exodus. Um, it's, bits of it will come up on the screen in a minute. Uh, in fact, if, Ali, if we can kill that just for now, that would be great. Um, one of the things we've stopped doing, it's not a comment on Werbeck, I don't know what you do, but one of the things we've stopped doing in All Saints is putting the Bible reading um, on the screens at the very beginning of a sermon because uh, for two reasons. One, um, the experts tell us that um, we're more likely to engage with it and remember it if we have a paper copy in front of us. Uh, there's, a, there's some interesting research around psychology of digital books, um, which is why I don't buy ele- electronic books. And so I'd encourage you to carry a Bible with you around whenever you possibly can. The brain takes more in when you handle, handle it than if it's on the screen. The other thing, of course, is that faith comes by hearing. And so sometimes not having it there and listening to it spoken is good. So Exodus chapter 33. Um, I'm not going to go through the whole passage all in one go. We're going to read the first bit and we'll come back to it in a moment. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. That, by the way, is everybody else. Uh, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Keep it open in front of you. I'm not here to tell you that God thinks you're a stiff-necked people, so relax. But there's a fascinating uh, moment in this chapter, which we'll come to, uh, which I think is really important for the church in these days. And I think a church like yours, which is like mine, which longs to play its part in the transformation of society, the renewal of the church, the coming of the kingdom, we need to pay attention to. Um, The Israelites, if you know this story, are at this moment of huge transition. They're about to head into the promised land. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years, whole crazy story around that. This is finally... uh, the destination they've been aiming for, this land that's flowing with milk and honey, symbolic of the blessing of God, the favor of God, this place that will be Edenic, from which they are called to reestablish God's world as he intended. They've talked about this. They sat around those fires at night on the journey, remembering why they're on the journey. They've been telling their kids what this is about. They've prayed for this. They've dreamed about it. Verse 1, God finally says to Moses, Mate, it's time. It is time. But then he says, there's just one thing. I'm not going with you. I've got you this far, but I'm not going with you. I'll send an angel, but you are not going to have my presence with you. You will not know the direct, the direct manifest presence with you. Why? The answer is in verse 3. He says, you are stiff-necked. That's like classic Old Testament prophet language for kind of the people of God who've hardened their hearts to him, who've been disobedient to his ways. They've been unresponsive to attempt after attempt after attempt 
to get them to call, come back to him, to fall back into line. They've been doing their own thing. And because he is holy and they are not, he knows, verse 5, that if he was to do this in this place that he's prepared for them, he would destroy them. That's why Moses, early on in the story, like I mentioned earlier, has to turn his back on him because if you have this revelation of the holiness of God, it will kill you. That's why John, the beginning of the book of Revelation, he has this revelation and it says, doesn't he, that he falls down as though dead because he thinks he's going to die. The glory of God is so much that he just, he's overwhelmed and crushed by it. That, by the way, is a similar thing that goes on sometimes when the power of God fills the people of God and some of us can't hold it and we fall over. It's a glorious thing. It's weird, but it's glorious. It makes sense. And in that story, the book of Revelation, Jesus says to John, stand up. Gives him the means to cope with this revelation. Earlier on in the scriptures, Jesus says to the disciples, um, there's so much more I'd like to show you right now. The word there is reveal, revelation, but you couldn't bear it. You couldn't cope with the revelation. The word for bear is actually crush. It would kill you. It's the same idea. And the reason this matters is that God wants to work powerfully in these days through the church. But he's looking for a holy church. He's looking for a church that has understood that they're a temple to the Holy Spirit. And temples are where gods dwell. And temples are places for the holiness of God to dwell. And so you and I are called to be people who are holy as he is holy. You know that. And so here is this moment for the people of God where they have a decision to make. And we find ourselves, don't we, in extraordinary times. A few weeks ago, coronavirus was this thing over there, but now it's this thing here. And we're, if we're honest, many of us, at the very least, anxious, worried, confused, wondering. Some of us are in fear. Certainly the people out there beyond the church are terrified Many people, there's all sorts of reasons for that, partly because we're not used to having an enemy to fight. We have no framework for making sense of this, that thing that's beyond our control. Whereas we do, of course, we know that God hasn't sent this, but he's allowed it, and that the evil one will use it to his end. And actually our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's not even with viruses and diseases. It's with the powers and principalities. And we know that we are on the team that has won already. Jesus has conquered sin and death and he's victorious over all of that, but we still fight that battle out. Come back to that in a moment. But we find ourselves, I think, as a nation, as a people, as a culture, at a particular juncture. I think there's a shakedown going on. God has always said, I'll, I'll judge and shake and takes these moments to do that. And there's a call on the church of God to be attentive to what, what God wants to do in and through this moment. God wants to do extraordinary things in these days, I would say, through the church. But he's looking for a holy church. He's looking for a church that is living in and from the presence of God. For reasons that will become apparent in a moment. 1 John 4, we read that perfect love casts out all fear. When you're in the presence of God, there's no room for anything else but love. Because God is love, of course. And so God is testing the hearts of the Israelites, and I think God is testing our hearts as a church in these days. I've been saying this for a while. I didn't start saying it knowing this was coming, but it makes sense in a way to me that this is happening. It's a reminder that we need God. So what's their response? Verse 4, it's to remove all their jewelry. 
which on one level, when we read it quickly, doesn't really seem that significant. But notice in verse 5, uh, Moses has already been told that this is the kind of response that God is looking for. And so that's what he tells them to do, and they do. And it's symbolic of this humbling before God, humbling of themselves before God. The jewelry uh, is the outward sign of an internal, coming off is the outward sign of an internal shift. It's also a really pragmatic thing, because in those days there weren't banks, so you carried your wealth around on you. It, you had it in jewellery form, not a Monzo card in your wallet. And so for them to take off their jewellery is not only a humbling of themselves and saying of what really matters is you, God, but actually a, a trusting God with who they are, not depending on their own strength and resource and wealth and intelligence and all of those sorts of things. And so their response to God essentially is no, no. That's not a deal we're prepared to meet with you. We're not prepared to go without you. We'll camp. We'll find that in a moment. We'll camp out and wait. They, they humble themselves. And I guess I, I want to say to you that I think God wants us to lead the way in these days. Like, How can we be a people that lead the world around us back to God if we haven't first done what God needs of us? Because just like the coronavirus is highly contagious, so too is holiness. It's the other kind of way. So Jesus is full of the presence of God, who's holy and without sin and blemish. When he touches someone who is, I'm not going to, don't worry, who, is, who has disease and sickness, he's not infected by them. They're infected with what he's got. They're cleansed and they're made whole and they are healed because the holiness of God, the presence of God in the spiritual sense is more powerful than anything around this world. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should start to go and lay hands on the sick. I think that would be unwise. But I think we can pray for the sick. But the point I'm trying to make is that there's something beautiful and profound about a people of God full of the presence of God who've made themselves these holy vessels for it because they are temples who go in faith and actually trust that what's in us flows out and brings transformation. But God can't do that if we don't first say, God, I need to be cleansed and made whole and I want to come back to you. Does this make sense? Yeah, I don't want this to be a heavy thing. I think it's an invitation. I don't think it's a rebuke. I don't think it's anything other than this is how it works, guys. And when you get it, it won't be a hard thing. It'll be like, oh, yes, that makes sense. That makes sense of that deep longing that I've had that I've not put language to before. So let's read on for a moment. Verse 7, now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord, remember the tent of meeting? Uh, anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. It's the manifest presence of God with them. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Isn't that amazing? If then that was possible, it, imagine what's possible now because of Christ for us. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young assistant Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. 
We'll come back to this in a moment. But Moses here is talking to God. And the chronology is a bit funny here uh, because of the way they tell stories uh, in the scriptures. The answer actually uh, to what goes on in this conversation is found in verse 15. So let's um, just quickly look at that. There's a slide for this. Moses said to him in this conversation, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here, up from here. Notice verse 16. How will anyone, sorry, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Without your presence, God, we cannot be your people in that place for the sake of your kingdom. We cannot do it. Nothing else will distinguish us. What distinguishes the church from everybody else is not our theology. It's not even our good moral practice and ethical codes as much as they are ultimately distinctive and important. It's actually the thing that we do those things for and the things that, allow, that, that, that allows, which is to be in and from the presence of God. It's encounters with Jesus that changes people, not doctrine. This is why it's so good you're telling stories, because we can teach theology all day long, but theology is transferred into hearts by stories. Which is why we sometimes have to interpret what's being said and put language to it. We have a choice, friends, in this day. Are we going to be a people who, who know what we're called to do, know where we're headed, know what kind of life God has for us, but say we're not prepared to do it unless you are first in us and going with us? Will we prioritize a pursuit of the presence of God or not? I think it's a really big question for us. Their basic answer is no way, God. No way. They weren't willing to trade life in God's presence for life in the promised land. And I guess I reflect on that a lot and think, okay, if we want to be a church that's on fire so that we can be a church that helps our city come alive... The presence of God in our life is the priority. The, the, a life in the Spirit, ministering in the power of the Spirit, being people of the presence of God is where it starts and where it ends. And the question, I guess, for us is, is his presence in our life, is our presence in him more important to us than anything else or not? Idolatry is when something other than God takes center stage of our lives. It's the thing we worship and sacrifice for. And all of us are challenged all the days of our lives by idolatry. The culture around us invites us the whole time to worship something else. But your worship of Jesus ultimately gets lived out and played out, not, not by knowing what to believe and sticking to some moral code and being good, although that is a response to grace and a response to the presence of God. It's lived out in and for the presence of God here on earth. Because when you're with God... And when you've seen him and heard him and felt him and experienced his transforming power, going in his name and in his power and living out the ways of Jesus, it's a, it's a response of worship. It's a yes, because it makes sense. It's not so that God loves us. It's because we know that he loves us. How do you know that he loves you? Because you've been in his presence and you've felt it and experienced it and he's said it to you again and again and again. And I, I guess I'm just a bit nervous at times because I think we've got really good at strategy in the church. I think we've got really good at programs. 
and albums and logos and websites and teaching series and festoon lighting in our churches. We've got it. You've got it. It's cool. I mean, it is cool. But that's not what distinguishes us. That isn't what led that guy to turn up to Alpha. It's not what brought me to faith. They help sometimes, but they're not the aim. They're not the thing we rely on. They're, they're just packaging for the presence. And the question you have to resolve every single day of your life, and you have to keep resolving as a church, is are we prepared to be the people of his presence no matter what, even if we don't get to the promised land? Now, interestingly, there are two promised lands for you. There is the promised land of what God wants to do, the place he wants to take you, to take me. And in one sense, there's a shared one of those that we all have because we're the people of God in this day and age. But there's a particular one of those for Werbs. And here's the thing. You, you could strategize into that really well. You could get there, but lose the presence of God. Because you, you're good at it. You're good at doing church. That's great. You're, you're part of a network that's brilliant at doing church. HDB have trailblazed. Like your inheritance is extraordinary. Thank goodness for Alpha. I came to faith on Alpha. Anyone else? Yeah, it, it's this gift. But without the presence of God, so what? Without a choice to be holy as he is holy for the sake of his name and his fame, so what? I don't want to build a church and have a sense of the promised land, but wake up one day and go, but God, you're not here, are you? I don't want that. The second promised land is the one that we all have sometimes, if not all the time, tempting us away from the things of God. This vision of the good life the world offers us. And the more money you have, the harder it is because you're inoculated from pain and suffering for a while, although the coronavirus is showing us, interestingly, that's not the case, and it's the people with the most money and the most um, able to travel that have been hit the hardest, which is why professional footballers are going down like flies. It's really interesting, because the more you can travel, the more susceptible you are to it. So it's kind of, who knows what's going on there. But like all the time, we're being tempted, aren't we, to, to just to make Jesus a bit part player in a different story rather than sacrifice all of those things. You know, one of the great sadnesses for me, if I'm really honest, is um, I came to faith at 21. And in our 20s, there was a whole load of us who were really, really passionate for the gospel and for the kingdom. And, and many of us have given our lives to it and we're going for it. And then one by one, people started to become more interested in patios than the presence of God and pensions than power. And I get it, but I'm like, I don't care about your extension. I don't care about your upgrade life. The kingdom life is a downgrade life. Choosing not to upgrade your car so that someone else can have a car to get to work. It's choosing not to extend or upgrade your house so that you can help someone get one. That's what I'm interested in. And that makes no sense unless you deeply know God and you see what he sees and you feel what he feels and you hear what he wants you to hear and, and it starts to become this normative experience to live into the world with possibility for the kingdom of God. That's only learned and experienced and recalibrated time and time again in the presence of God. 
aided by the scriptures, aided by the gathering, aided by prayer, aided by mentors, aided, aided for sure, but you have to make that choice. And the church gathered has to make that choice. Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. Where did he see what the Father was doing? When he went to spend time with the Father. So time and time again, there are these glorious moments in the gospel accounts where Jesus is nowhere to be found. The disciples are like, you know, there's a classic moment. One morning, the disciples open the front door of whoever's house they're in. There's all these people who've heard Jesus is in town. They need healing. Where is he? Eventually, they find him, and they're a bit like, where have you been? You you numpty, we need you. And he's like, been up the hill with my father. I only do what I see the father doing. He withdrew the whole time. He goes up hills, symbolic of ascending the hill of the Lord. It's, it's not literally a hill, necessarily. Have you ever been out there? It's quite flat. There are a couple of hills. It's not a literally going up a mountain. It's, about, it's symbolic to say, I've sought the presence of my Father in whom I live and have my being. And from that place, I've come back into what I'm called to do, and I'll do what I see the Father's shown me. And then he heals people because he who's in them is greater than he who's around us. But, but that's the way of Jesus for us. Which is why I think at the end of the day, if you're serious about this, you've just got to get up early in the morning. You have to reclaim your morning. Everyone I know who I look to as a spiritual giant, anyone I know who I think, wow, I wish I was more like you. When I ask them the question, tell me, what does your day look like? Without exception, they tell me they get up earlier than everybody else. Because once you're into your day, it's too late. There may be exceptions to that. Do you get up first thing in the morning? What's the first thing you do when you get up? Chances are it's check your phone. Top tip, if you're serious, don't take your phone anywhere near your bedroom. Seriously, our phones are not allowed upstairs in our house. If you need it as an alarm clock, go and buy one from Tesco's. It's seven pounds. Seriously, because the first thing you do in the morning, if it's check your phone, is you go into the world, or the world's in your bedroom. Before you even get out of bed, you're anxious because you've read the news feed. What's Donald Trump said now? The first thing has to be, God, you're here, aren't you? I'm meant to live in in your presence. I'm meant to live from your presence. Fill me again today. Your mercies are new every morning. You'd be pleased to know I'm way off my notes. But I hope it's helpful. And so Moses basically has this moment with God where he basically makes a deal. God, we're going to be the people you've called us to be. We're going to do what you've called us to do. And God changes his mind. And if you know the story, God does go with them. There's a few things they do that I think we can learn from. Notice, uh, so let's read um, back through again. I'll just pick these out. Verse 7. Moses, it was his habit to seek God in the tent of meeting. People would take themselves off to meet with God. Not just Moses. Moses went on behalf as their leader Verse 11, it says, Lord, the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a friend. Wherever you are, you are in a tent of meeting. 
Wherever you are, God is with you because he's everywhere. But if you've asked him again and again to take up residence in your heart, to be someone who's in his presence and whose presence is in you, wherever you are, you can spend time with him face to face. So it's good to get up in the morning. It's really good to reclaim the morning. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be for an hour and a half. It could just be 10 minutes earlier. But here's what you also have to know, which is that wherever you are, you can be in that place of encounter, that place of rest, that place of being still, because God is with you. So if you're sat in traffic, or you're waiting for a meeting, or you're early at the school gate, even when there are things going on all around you, you can also be in the manifest, tangible sense of presence of God. My friend, uh, some of you will know him or have heard his teaching, a guy called John Mark Comer in Portland, who's incredible, probably, I mean, phenomenal. I've had the privilege of knowing him for seven or eight years, and he has this wonderful way of talking about it. He says, the, the, being people of the presence is about learning to be in two places at the same time. Have you heard this? So you're, you're at work and in the presence of God. You're changing your kid's nappy again, and you're in the presence of God. It's because wherever you are, if you've asked God to be with you in a tangible sense, he is with you. If you've, asked, if you've said, God, dwell in me today, he, he does. And so his thing is you, you have to almost find, and he actually has a physical body posture, which is, so he, he, he will, if you watch him, he'll like be in a room and he's doing something and he's thinking, God, what are you thinking about this? Or, ah, oh, and he'll just gently lean back or he'll roll his eyes. And it's his way of kind of just, God, you're here, aren't you? I found that really helpful. I was in a school governor meeting the other day, uh, and there was a conversation going on uh, about a um, particular child who's very difficult and who's going to have to be expelled. It's one of the local state schools, and there is a clergy governor. And just something in my spirit didn't ring true with the analysis of this kid, the the behavioral pattern and what was going on. And um, I just remembered this, and I, I was just thinking, God, you're here, aren't you? You're with me. I kind of, in my head, leant back. I didn't literally, and I was like, Father, show me what I'm not seeing. And uh, I felt the Father said to me, uh, this kid um, is desperately, desperately, desperately wants a hug from her dad. Which sounds so, like, obvious. And I'm thinking, now what do I do, God? Like, what do I say? Oh, hello. Um, but so I asked a question. I just said, um, do, do we know what the um, situation is with the home life a bit more? Could tell me a bit more about mum and dad? And anyway, long story cut short, is it turned out that this, the dad had left, but not actually left in the sense of he was still living in the house. And I'm conscious I could be touching on all sorts of things here. But what it meant was the school hadn't seen, uh, because as far as they knew, mum and dad were living in the same house. They hadn't even clocked. But actually, this kid was just craving intimacy and affection and affirmation and was playing off, playing up, basically. And it massively shifted how we tackled it. Now, I'm not taking the credit there at all. It's except to point out that that's how God wants to work through you and us. But it took me being attentive to the presence of God in the school at that moment, rather than mistakenly thinking that I can only engage with the presence of God in my study before I leave the house in the morning. Does that make sense? Now apply that to where you are going to be on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Thursday afternoon, Friday evening. You're in the pub with your friends and they start telling you something about their relationship or something at work. You can remember that you can be in two places at the same time. You can be in the presence of God and in the pub 
Father, show me. Speak to me. Give me prophetic insight for that person. You're sat in the canteen and there's that colleague who just does your head in every single time you talk to them. God, what's going on here? How can I love them? Does this make sense? So are you people, are we people who will intentionally seek God, look for those face-to-face moments of encounter? The danger for us is you think, oh, it's just in the morning and it's just at Werbs on a Sunday. And you can learn it there and you can get a sense of what it feels like, but the practice, the intentionality, remember that word on the slide, is about learning how to do it yourself, which is why... John Mark Homer's stuff around following the way, practicing the way of Jesus, the spiritual practices, rediscovering the disciplines is so important. Formation is learned through repetition. You know, without repetition, there is no formation. Make things daily habits. Make them daily choices. So every time you get up early and pray and rest like we did just now, if we do anything else, you will learn how to inhabit the presence of God. Every time you open the scriptures, you will learn a bit more. All these things we can do to seek him and help him. And I know you have that conversation in your church. I would also say that it's something that we do in community. What I haven't got time to tease out here, because I want us to actually pray for each other, is that this was a community thing here. It wasn't just something that Moses did. They all did it. Moses did a particular version of it, because he's the leader. Phil and Anna, they will seek God in a particular way for words, because it's their job. It's their burden. It's their calling. They love it. But the best times of prayer for a church are when you all turn up. Top tip, if you want to be someone who's around the presence, knows how to live in or from the presence of God more, spend time with people who live in the presence of God. Uh, It's caught, not taught. The, the, The best way to do it is to turn up to prayer meetings. It really is. Get down to church early and pray with those who are praying for the gathering. Sometimes it's really boring. But you will still learn it. If your expectation is, well, it's, it's not a priority, then funnily enough, it won't become normative for you. You know what I'm trying to say. Now, pause for a moment and think, this is then when God's presence was confined to the tent of meeting with all the protocols around it. But now we're so much freer, aren't we? We live in the New Testament era. So Hebrews 10 says, friends, we can now, without hesitation, walk right up to God into the holy place. That's the message paraphrase. Extraordinary. We can now, without hesitation, walk right up to God into the holy place. Jesus dies. He's as he dies on the cross, the temple t- curtain is torn from top to bottom. The presence of God has left the building. He is now everywhere, and he'll be in all, all sorts of extraordinary places. And he wants to take up residence in you. And he says, you can come into my presence anytime you like. Anytime. My kids, do not knock on my study door. They just come in. I love that. We're children of the king. We don't need permission to ask him for a glass of water. To quote C.S. Lewis. We have unfettered access. You and I, we get to gather, maybe not for much longer, in the same place at the same time. And there are no limitations. God is there. 
We get to worship. We get to break bread and pour out wine. We get to lay hands on one another. We get to teach the scriptures. We have our own one of these. At least one, probably loads. You've got something on your devices. You've got way more scripture than any of them have ever had. There's more scripture in your back pocket than the church has had for 1,900 years. But we don't read it. We've got infinite amounts of worship songs that you can stream on Spotify. Like you can die by singing. <laughs> There's so much teaching you can listen to. There is no excuse for us. It's a choice. And then we've got the Spirit of God who God sends in the place of the Son to empower us, to equip us. Jesus says, it's better for you that I go and that instead of me, you have the Spirit. I'm the temple of God here right now, but I can only be in one place at one time. When my Spirit comes, I can be in all places at all times through you. And see, he will come and he will guide you into all truth. And through him, I will be with you to the very end of the age. We hear that and we go, oh, that's nice. He's going to help us get there. No, he doesn't mean that. What he means is I'm going to be with you. I'm going to dwell in the world with you. I'm in you. You're now my hands and my feet. You are now my eyes and my ears. You are now who I am to the world. You're my body, but I am with you. And I will finish what I've started. It's extraordinary. This gift of the Holy Spirit is a gift who comes when we ask and sometimes even when we don't. I, I, I might go out on a limb here. Don't have to invite me back ever. I don't think it's possible to be a fully biblical follower of Jesus and not be a charismatic I don't think it's a theological choice fundamentally. I think it's a biblical kind of non-negotiable. I think it's what it is to be human in these days, to be filled with the Spirit. Just like Adam was, he was, God breathed on him. To be human is to be someone who's full of the Spirit. That's where the life is. I'm surprised that the church is so tentative about God's Spirit. I get it. In one sense, we're not always very good at handling it. There are all sorts of weird things that happen. Some of it's weird and shouldn't be, and some of it's weird because it's God. And discerning the difference is hard. I get that. But if God's chosen to do it that way, who are we to say, ah, no, sorry, no thanks. Like, i kind of cool with your scriptures, quite like church every other week. But this abandoning myself to your power so that you can do incredible things through me, easy. Easy. I'm pushing you. Because the guest speaker can. When was the last time you spent long enough with your arms open, your eyes closed, standing because you honor God and saying, fill me, Jesus. Fill me. And waited and trusted and didn't mind if you shook or cried or fell over and didn't worry if none of those things happened, but you trusted that God was filling you with his presence. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that called creation into being wants to fill you for you. So you can be transformed into the you that Jesus would be if he was you. And so that through you, he might do these things that the world needs more than ever. When did you last do that? So many of us, it's like when we go to the petrol station, we put 20 quids worth of fuel in just to keep us going. But, but 
Paul says in Ephesians, go on being filled. It's present continuous tense. And he says, to the fullness of the measure of God. I've yet to find a theologian who knows what that means. But I, I, I think it sounds like a lot. That I'm kind of go, you, you decide God when I'm full. When did you last respond to an altar call moment or a response call after one of these guys has taught you? And just, I, I know in that moment, like the front of church feels like a nine miles away. I, I, I know that. But like, who cares? Do you want the presence of God? Do you want the power of God? Or not? Do you want to come alive fully? And yet you might be the outlier. You might be the first one that goes. Someone has to go first. I don't know what happens. I don't know what it's like for you. I, I basically, I, I, um, I made it a decision at the beginning of the year that I'm going to respond to every invitation to go to the front for prayer ministry in church, uh, anything I'm at, ever. Now, this kind of came unstuck a couple of weeks ago because I was at a New Wine Leaders Conference and the call was for women who don't feel like they've been honoured by the church. I'm not listening. Now, it was right to make that call because this is a completely different conversation, but the church has been rubbish at honouring women historically, and we're slowly putting that right. I know you guys have got it down, but I hope, and I see that. But So I went to the front. So there's me and about 300 women, and it dawned on me just as they started to move around and I'm like, and then I thought, you know, I don't care. I don't care, because God will meet with me. And he did. It was the most powerful encounter I've had with the Spirit of God for a long time. Now, hear me. I'm an INTJ on the Myers-Briggs, if that means anything to you. So I love you, but I'll need to find a dark room for a couple of hours this afternoon. Um, I'm an Enneagram 5, if that means anything to you. Uh, so you're all going, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so I, by disposition, I don't really like the touchy-feely stuff. And we sing far too many songs as far as I'm concerned. And just give me a bit more Hebrew. But what I do know is because I've read this, that preference has to be put to one side. Personal story and embarrassment, whatevs. God has decided this is how he's going to do it. And so I'm all in.